Well, hi there. Welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show for Monday, October the 5th. Today on the podcast, the Greater Toronto Hockey League has put a pause on the season until the new year. So we talked to Minister of Sport, Lisa McLeod, about the decision and what's happening in other leagues. And Chair of the Toronto Board of Health sheds light on the decision to stop contact tracing outside congregate settings. I want to turn our attention south of the border, if we could right now, to the biggest story on the globe. And that, of course, is the story about President of the United States, Donald Trump, who is currently at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. That's exactly where Reggie Cicchini, our Washington correspondent for Global News, is. And he joins the show now. Reggie, happy Monday. Good morning. So yesterday, I, funnily enough, had the TV going. I, I was on one of those uh, 24-hour news stations. It happened to be the one that uh, Trump hates the most. And uh, I heard them break into uh, an interview and say, wait, 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 we have to go live. We just we've just seen uh, the president of the United States uh, drive out of Walter Reed Hospital. At the time, they thought he was heading back to the White House. He didn't. It was just a drive by for supporters outside Walter Reed Hospital. Um, There are people that say he puts Secret Service members at risk being in the vehicle with him because he, of course, is covid positive and he was only wearing what looked to be. Um, you know, a uh, paper mask. Was this ultimately a poorly conceived stunt that will hurt his campaign, in your opinion? Well, I mean, number one, this is exactly what uh, President Trump was criticized for during the rallies in Washington, D.C., when he cleared out Lafayette Square to go and do a photo op in front of a church while holding a Bible. It is the same kind of moment where President Trump needs to ensure that he can be seen as not weak, that he's in control, that he's in command, and that he is still the leader of the Republican Party, for which these people are, are standing at the entrance to Walter Reed Medical for him to be able to go and wave at. And medical experts from both within Walter Reed that aren't working on the president's uh, or a part of the president's team, but also independent health workers have used one word to describe that stunt, and it was reckless simply because of the nature of, of, of the virus and the crisis that he potentially created by putting so many people in harm's way. Yeah, there were also a lot of people criticizing him, saying that, look, 250,000 Americans have died, some of them alone. Their family couldn't even say goodbye, and this guy's getting in a vehicle and driving around to wave to his, you know, fan base. And it came within minutes of a Twitter video that had been released where the president was thanking first responders, thanking military members that are actively working inside Walter Reed, but then also kind of joined this kind of martyrdom of himself of saying he now understands COVID. He's gone to school, not the book. You know what? I'm going to I'm going to interrupt you if I could for a second, Reggie, because I actually have that clip. Let's play it live, Dave. I'm not telling anybody but you, but I'm about to make a little surprise visit. So perhaps I'll get there before you get to see me. But I just, uh, when I look at the enthusiasm, and we have enthusiasm like probably nobody's ever had. So uh, it's been a very interesting journey. I learned a lot about COVID. I learned it by really going to school. This is the real school. This isn't the let's read the book school. And I get it and I understand it. And it's A very interesting thing, and I'm going to be letting you know about it. In the meantime, we love the USA, and we love what's happening. Thank you. I understand that Trump has COVID, and, you know, it's not polite to hit someone when they're down. But, I mean, that is so completely out of touch, Reggie. This is the uh, president of the United States of America. He should have been going to COVID school back in January. Is this backfiring because he didn't appropriately use that moment to remind people to stay safe? 
That's where a lot of the criticism comes right now, that the president, who ultimately has the loudest megaphone uh, and microphone in this country, has not used this moment as an opportunity to explain not only to his base, but to the country, A, what his symptoms are, but B, the realities of the severity of this virus, and that it can impact anyone across the country, even those who are actively uh, uh, kind of protected, like the president is, uh, by being uh, around fewer people, if he can, by being tested so frequently. This is is a moment uh, that is going to be watched uh, for years to come on how to not lead a country during a crisis. His medical officials said yesterday that he may go home today. Any update on that? What are you hearing? So the chief of staff told one of our colleagues uh, within the last hour that that decision is going to be made sometime later today. But again, it's a move that's being widely panned by independent medical experts who say the president is likely one of the only people in the world who's receiving the treatment that he's receiving, both with remdesivir, with the Regeneron antibody treatment he received last week, uh, and uh, with dexamethasone, the steroid. This is this is an aggressive treatment plan for the president of the United States and to have that administered inside the White House, not with not that's not that's not uh, as capable uh, and suited with equipment as Walter Reed is uh, puts into to question whether or not they're still not treating this severely or whether or not the president's symptoms are just so severe that they don't want it. You know, they're trying to keep up appearances here. There, there are still more questions than answers. And the mixed messaging coming from the medical team and from the White House are really what's causing that. Reggie, has anyone raised any concern about the fact that we're talking about the president of the United States and they're basically throwing all of these different treatments at him at once? Can't there be a possibility of adverse reaction to, you know, from one steroid to that, you know, experimental drug treatment to, you know, COVID itself? Absolutely. The health community has already said dexamethasone, the steroid, is only supposed to be given to those who are critically ill and it can have adverse effects in people who have symptoms that are less severe. So there are that that, that has raised the questions as to the severity of President Trump's symptoms. Uh, it's worth pointing out over the weekend, Dr. Sean Conley, the White House physician, would not answer what was found on CTs of the president's lungs. They wouldn't talk about what was found during x-rays, saying that there were only quote unquote normal findings. And that has opened questions as to whether the president potentially had something pre-existing going in or whether this has uh, exacerbated a symptom that he was already feeling because we don't know when the president's last negative test was. If these were super quick onset symptoms the president has had, that would suggest that the situation is much more grave. Yeah, one of the things that reporters were constantly hammering uh, members of the Trump administration with yesterday was the fact uh, when was his last negative test? And they declined to answer that question. And the reason why, Reggie, is because Thursday he went out um, to a, a fundraising um, uh, event. And this is apparently just hours after getting a positive um, COVID-19 test. Can you can you elaborate on the storyline there? Yeah, so the president was given a, a test. It tested positive. Uh, they won't say whether it was administered before New Jersey or on the way home from New Jersey, only that it was administered and came back positive. He then went on air with Sean Hannity on Fox News, did an interview, talked about taking a test, did not confirm the result, then took a second test and released those positive results on Friday morning. Uh, the fact that the White House is being less than transparent on when the president's most recent negative test was does open questions as to whether this could have been something that was contracted much earlier. Uh, 
uh, and simply wasn't uh, caught because there is no uh, uh, solid reporting here on when the president is tested, how often he's tested negative. And we know that the president did not take a test on site at the debate on Tuesday like the Biden campaign did. That was told by Chris Wallace. So again, it further questions as to whether the president potentially could have been sick before that, possibly at the Rose Garden event, possibly while he was in Minnesota. There are more questions than answers right now about the president and how long he may have been sick, but also how far back contact tracing needs to go. You brought up the Rose Garden event, and this was to uh, nominate his uh, or to present his nominee for the Supreme Court. Um, And apparently people were not socially distanced at that event. They weren't wearing masks, Reggie. One of the other things that the Trump administration refuses to answer is how many people in the White House actually have also tested positive. What do you know about that? Yeah, so when Kayleigh McEnany, the press secretary, came to the sticks on the driveway yesterday, that question was posed to her, and she refused to answer, saying that she didn't want to dive into people's uh, private medical records, uh, which, again, opens questions as to how far spread this is throughout the White House, because it is worth pointing out, the Centers for Disease Control has an incredibly in-depth contact tracing uh, method and organization, especially through the federal government. The White House is opting to not take part in that. The White House is doing their own contact tracing. It's also worth pointing out the White House has not contacted any of the people who have tested positive to find out who they may have been in contact with as well. This includes senators and this includes journalists, uh, including one who was uh, who's kind of made his rounds across the networks to explain the situation. This is problematic for a contact tracing effort, given the fact that there were so many people in that Rose Garden event, uh, if that was the nexus of this event. But considering that this could spread far and wide and have wide ranging impacts up to and including the upcoming hearings for Amy Coney, uh, Coney Barrett, considering two members of the Judiciary Committee were in attendance with the president and are now sick with COVID. No doubt about it. This is irresponsible behavior on uh, the Trump administration. What are the polls suggesting today? Well, so the president is trailing uh, in national polls. There were a series of polls done over the weekend. Most of them were done before the president contracted COVID, but they show somewhere between a 7, 10 and 11 point difference uh, between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Internal GOP polls are also showing that Joe Biden has now made uh, gains over Donald Trump and is on the plus side in several key swing states. There are also polls out there that show in states like South Carolina and Florida Support is starting to erode from Donald Trump's base, and Joe Biden is at either an equivalent point or on the plus side of where Donald Trump is. This is a dire situation for the president. They are now dealing with sinking polling numbers, but also a PR crisis, considering he downplayed the virus and is now patient number one at Walter Reed. How does that equate with uh, the, the numbers in South Carolina and Florida as far as COVID cases go? Well, look, this is problematic for the president when it comes to uh, the numbers in South Carolina. He is trailing Joe Biden in Florida. He is uh, trailing Joe Biden in South Carolina. The Senate race is now potentially falling for the Republicans in South Carolina. Both of these states were impacted heavily by COVID-19 earlier on. Their Republican governors refused to take uh, the medical experts' advice, and more and more people ended up getting sick. Both of these states have now opened up very quickly. The fact that the president is in hospital with COVID-19, his numbers are now sinking in these states. This is a nightmare situation for a president 30 days out from an election. Okay, so before I let you go, you are outside Walter Reed National Military Center in uh, Maryland. What's the scene like there, Reggie? Who's outside the hospital? 
There is still a large group of President Trump's supporters with their flags. They are playing music. When we got here this morning, they were playing You Can't Always Get What You Want. They were playing uh, 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 God, uh, God Bless the USA. This, this is a group who has been standing here all night long. This is that group of patriots that the president was so adamant about coming out and seeing last night, putting himself and Secret Service in jeopardy solely so that he can shore up that support that's behind him. What it does, though, is push away those who are considered undecided or potentially voters who were Republican, who have been impacted by COVID-19 simply because of the messaging that's coming from Donald Trump. Reggie, I want to thank you for your time today. Have yourself a, a safe afternoon. Thank you. That's Reggie Cicchini, our Washington uh, correspondent for Global News outside Walter Reed National Military Hospital. Now, we will probably be hearing from Reggie a little bit later on today, especially if the president does make a move back to the White House, uh, where, you know, essentially they've got their own little hospital situation in the White House. It's not anything like being at Walter Reed. But if they uh, determine his uh, his White House doctors that he's good to go, or if he just makes them determine that, I guess he'll be heading home. We'll let you know as soon as we get information on that. We have Elisa McLeod, Minister of Heritage and Sport, Tourism and Cultural Industries on the line right now. Welcome to the show, Minister. Good to have you on. Well, thanks so much, Kelly, for having me on. Wanted to reach out to you because the Greater Toronto Hockey League, which, uh, you know, a lot of kids belong to, I think 30,000 kids belong to this league, has hit pause until the new year. Uh, They were supposed to kick off their season beginning October the 7th. They, They are hitting pause because of the surging coronavirus cases. What's your reaction to the news? Listen, I, uh, I've, I'm a mother myself. My daughter was out on the ice. And she's a midget hockey player in Ottawa. Uh, they had their first practice last night. So obviously, I understand and empathize with their concern. And I think that they took a tough yet necessary decision. Uh, we'll let uh, league by league make the determinations on how they want to deal with the, the, uh, the increase in the hot spots. We do know, working with the Ontario Hockey Federation and, and others, that we have built a successful um, safe return to play model. Um, but again, uh, these are unprecedented times, and, and I certainly can understand why they took the tough yet necessary decision. And I can say uh, my daughter called me last night as I arrived in Toronto from Ottawa and said all the parents wanted to talk to mommy last night to find out um, you know, what my thoughts were at home. So uh, we're going to continue to monitor the situation at a pro- province-wide level, particularly in the hotspots of Ottawa, Toronto and Peel. Um, and, I, and I know that the, the, the league took a tough uh, decision, but uh, one that I think that they felt was necessary uh, to put those young athletes uh, uh, in a safe environment. So uh, tough, but, but necessary. Do you anticipate that private uh, training skills classes uh, and, you know, power skating classes will follow suit and, you know, in these hotspots? And if they don't, is there, um, if we keep seeing the rising numbers of COVID, can we expect that the government might consider stepping in? Well, look, the Premier's been pretty clear on everything as we look at safely reopening the economy, um, that uh, if the cases um, you know, do surge uh, and we can't uh, can't uh, eliminate the spread of COVID-19, that we would be eyeing uh, certain restrictions. We aren't at the moment right now looking at those. Um, we, we have looked at the return to play for all sports, and so if they have been deemed by the Chief Medical Officer of Health to move forward, uh, we're going to continue to allow it, but we will continue to monitor the situation um, in many respects with respect to the training and, um, and coaching facilities, for, particularly for our high-performance athletes and professional athletes. 
um, you know, th- those were uh, given a waiver early on in the, in the, in the pandemic because we, we were satisfied with the safe return to play protocols, for example, at the Canadian Sport Institute of Ontario or with the Raptors training facility. Um, so we just we, we continue to look at this. It's a lot of work, but we, we do have uh, some of the best medical minds in the province uh, looking at it. Uh, we also know that uh, not only is sport important for, for physical health, it's also really important after seven months into a pandemic for, for mental health. And so we're trying to balance all of those needs, uh, working with our provincial sport organizations, um, as well as my ministerial advisory panel on amateur sport. You know, when you punctuate that it's very important for uh, mental health, I have to wonder how willing the province would be to move ahead with what Dr. Eileen Devella is asking. She's calling on the province to prohibit prohibit all indoor sporting activities. She also is looking at gyms and fitness centers. How willing would the government, the Ford government, be to act upon her requests? Well, you know, the Ottawa Chief Medical Officer of Health has also suggested similar things in Ottawa. We're not looking at that at the moment. Um, having said that, uh, this uh, situation that we're dealing with with respect to COVID-19 remains very fluid. And we continue to uh, work with the Chief Medical Officer of Health of Ontario and take his guidance. But these are conversations that we, we have and, and they're obviously things that we look at. But no determination as of yet has been made. Um, and, and again, we're just encouraging people to safely return to, to practice or play. Um, on what has been already uh, deemed, um, uh, you know, uh, appropriate and safe. And so the Chief Medical Officer of Health of Ontario would not sign off on things he did not deem safe. And so I think until he says otherwise, uh, we're going to continue to proceed as a province, um, you know, in allowing it and uh, allowing the uh, the local leagues to make their determinations. That's interesting because then we have a difference of opinion when it comes to chief medical officers, whether they be provincial or, uh, you know, in in the municipality of Toronto. I want to just ask you what's happening with leagues like the OHL. You brought the OHL up off the top. Yeah, so the OHL, uh, we continue to work with them to see if we can get them a a safe return uh, to play. They, They would like to go in December. Uh, that has not been finalized as of the moment. And I know there's been a lot of questions with respect to uh, body contact and checking if they were to return. And that has not been greenlit. And I don't suspect that it will be greenlit. Uh, we've been pretty clear at the outset that contact sport would not be resuming because of the high degree and high likelihood of a spread of COVID-19. Uh, so I know that uh, that has created a lot of um, conversation around the province, but uh, at this point in time, they've not been greenlit for that. And we continue to work with David Branch and others at the OHL organization uh, to see how, how they might salvage it. As you probably are aware, the Quebec Major Junior League uh, has started a resume play, uh, particularly with it, with respect to the Atlantic bubble. Those teams have been uh, playing quite a bit. So, you know, we, we continue to monitor it, but at this point in time, there's no new information. All right, Lisa, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, Kelly. Stay safe. Cheers. That's Lisa McLeod, Minister of Heritage, Sport, Tourism, and Cultural Industries. I want to roll something from the morning show today, if we could, Dave. Um, The audio that we've got is Scott Oakman. He's executive director of the GTHL, just to provide some perspective into what went into the choice of cancelling the league until at the very earliest, the new year. Uh, We've had the good fortune of being provided advice from uh, significant health authorities, uh, including the Hospital for Sick Children and Toronto Public Health, to to help guide them. But it's still never easy to make the types of decisions they've been having to make. Okay, and he also mentions uh, that parents have been uh, reacting to the news. The board made the decision, understanding there would be mixed reviews, and I think 
um, and mixed opinions. I think a lot of decisions that have been made around COVID, you're hearing lots of public debates around, um, you know, people's different opinions on it. And I think that's because of the uncertainty that's that's created. But And so the feedback we've got is, is not unexpected. Uh, and it is mixed. We have lots of people that have come forward and, and respect and understand the decision. They're certainly disappointed. And, and, and then there are people that disagree with the position the league has taken at this point in time. And so so we, we knew going in that that would, would likely be the outcome. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's reflected in the opinions we've been receiving. Sure. They made this decision uh, on the weekend and we're two days away from the start of the season. Okay, just uh, honestly, I don't have kids right now, but if I had a kid in hockey, you know how expensive that is? You invested money, new equipment. I want to get your reaction to this, 416-870-6400. If we could get some calls, uh, you know, on how you feel about the pause on the GTHL season. Maybe you're listening to me right now and you're like, yeah, this does affect my kids. This affects my kids largely. Uh, Now, you know, I have to disappoint them by saying, guess what, not going to hockey this year. We're really looking forward to it. Uh, but not only that, but just am I going to be able to return the equipment I just bought? 416-870-6400. Did you decide to put your kids in sports this year? Uh, it sounds like there is a difference of opinion. And I'm sure that parents will say, yeah, this was the right thing to do. At the end of the day, it's uh, safety first. And there will be parents that say, are you kidding? My kids are hopeful here. Might be um, good enough to to be in the NHL one day. I need to keep them in hockey. I need to make sure that they are constantly playing. And not only that, it's good for their mental health. As the Minister of Heritage and Sport and Tourism just said, Lisa McLeod, we've got a difference of opinions as well when it comes to our chief medical officers. You talk to the, you know, Dr. David Williams, and he says, well, I'm not willing to put a pin in sports. You talk to uh, Eileen Devella from Toronto. She's like, you know what? We probably shouldn't even be going to gyms anymore. We need to take a hard line on this, and we need to act very quickly. So I'm wondering where you sit on this, 416-870-6400. Are you disappointed with the fact that hockey is going to be canceled for your kid this year? The GTHL decided to suspend the uh, for uh, this season. Presumably, they'll revisit it near the start of the year. But, Tony, welcome to the show. You know, what? I think most of these uh, hockey moms... Uh, should get another job if they think their kids are going to be in the NHL. You know, it's a good thing that it's closed. If if they can't tell their kids uh, that there'll be no hockey, what kind of kids is she growing up? All right. Well, I don't know about blaming it all on the moms here. I think there's a lot of dads that have dreams for their kids to be in the big league. George and Brampton, welcome to the show. What do you think of the uh, the decision for the Greater Toronto Hockey League to uh, call it a, a day as far as the season goes. We're starting, we were supposed to start in two days, but they've hit a pause. Well, what happens with a lot of these things, not just hockey, it's, it's just that people are paying into these leagues, and then because of the late decision, you're having a hard time getting any money back. So, did you, pay, did you pay into the league this year? Not, not into hockey, but into soccer. Like, soccer's asking for money right now. We did it in the summer as well, where the league starts in May. They didn't cancel right. the league until July. And so and did you have a hard time getting your money back? Sure. Still don't have my money back. Well, how much are you in the hole for, if I could ask? 800 bucks. 800 bucks is 800 bucks. It's a lot of money. I mean, that could yeah. go to something else. I mean, how about groceries? Yeah. Like 800 bucks. Now they're asking for the indoor season. 
and they're not fully sure whether that's going or not because of the the delay in decision-making. Well, did you say to them, you already have my money for the outdoor season. Why do you need my money for the indoor season? They're like, hey, do you want to put your kid in or not? Wow. Okay, well, that's interesting. And I I appreciate the fact that these businesses, they have bills too, and they have to pay people. But yeah, that is something to be aware of. Thanks for that. Uh, Heads up, George. Hey, Mike in Toronto, welcome to the show. Thank you. I mean, that's uh, it's the right decision. I mean, parents were thinking about putting their kids, not putting their kids back into school. Now you're going to think about hockey? I mean, come on. Let's be reasonable. I mean, there's no reason for them to go into a sport right now. And about the parents that are paid the money or if they want to put them into indoor soccer, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give them any money right now. Not until, uh, you know, you get a clearer picture on what's going on. Appreciate the call. It looks like uh, the GTHL have made this decision on their own because the province is not saying that you have to stop things down. And I think the province is leaving it up to uh, different leagues. But, uh, Carrie, your thoughts on this? I'm just concerned that private industries such as Canlan and the National Training Rink ran such successful programs from April until September. But organized leagues such as the GTHL can't figure it out. There's so many safety precautions. Uh, the kids are safer on the ice than they are off the ice. So I'm, I'm really confused, and I'm really hoping that the OMHA doesn't continue and, and follow suit. What do you mean by uh, they're safer uh, you know, on the ice than off the ice? Well, they're wearing masks to walk into the arena. Then they take off their masks quickly. They put on their hockey uh, helmet. They're wearing gloves. They're wearing all their protective equipment. They're staying away from each other. There's no contact in hockey currently. Uh, when they're not on the ice, they're outside, they're, they're hugging, they're, they're going to school, they're sitting in classrooms, they're going to their after-school job where they would have far more contact than on the ice itself. Right, so you're saying that you, you think that the GTHL should have stayed, uh, they should have gone ahead with their season? They should have gone ahead for this season. They have to think about the kids. Unfortunately, the mental health of our, of our youth, of our children, is at risk. You know, all of these things are not normal for them, and nor should it be normal for them. And this was one thing that would help them be active and mentally healthy. And I think it's it's going to be a disappointment for many kids. Appreciate the call. You know, one of the things that I keep thinking of, uh, Chris, is, you know, it's it's not normal for anyone right now. And kids are the most resilient. I get that mental health is a big problem, but let, let's just say, I don't know if anybody can you know, like relate to this, but I didn't play any team sports beyond, you know, high school in gym class, right? Like I wasn't in any organized sports. I don't know if that's because I had an Italian father and a mother from uh, Belfast, or if I just, I I ended up just showing more interest in, you know, drama classes than sports. But at the end of the day, we still got our physical activity. Like we were out riding bikes, running around, hacking around in the neighborhood, playing hide and seek. There are a lot of ways to get physical activity and it doesn't always have to be through organized sports. So when we talk about mental health, I get that it'll be a change in your routine. But if anybody can handle a change in routine, it's got to be kids. All right. A couple of things you should be aware of. Um, one of them being you no longer can just walk up to a COVID-19 assessment center. Provincially, you have to make an appointment. And uh, when I was taking a look at the the appointments and how jammed up places are, there's a couple of uh, assessment centers that say they're already booked 
until midweek. So uh, that is uh, concerning. We talked to Dr. Suman Chakrabarty about that and about the fact that if that's the case, there's going to be a lot of people that aren't going to be tested and our numbers will not be completely 100% accurate because we still have a backlog in the system. So when we give you the COVID numbers in about five minutes time, the updated COVID numbers, take that with a grain of salt. That's not going to be entirely accurate. So if the numbers look like they're going down, that might be false. Another thing that you should be aware of, Toronto Public Health says it will no longer notify close contacts of people infected with COVID-19 outside of outbreaks in hospitals, long-term care homes, retirement homes, homeless shelters, schools, and child care centers. Why? Because of rapid the rapid rise in COVID-19 infections. Here to talk about it, Joe Cressy, City Councillor and Chair of the Toronto Board of Health. Joe, this couldn't have been an easy decision to make. Well, Kelly, this is not where we want to be in the city of Toronto and in the province right now. I think where we are today is we have cases rising rapidly in our city and province. We have outbreaks occurring throughout the city in community settings, in schools and workplaces. And we have a system that is overwhelmed. You mentioned that we have waits to get tested. We have a backlog of nearly 80,000 tests still to be processed. And so by the time we start contact tracing, well, it's already behind because of those backlogs. And so if we are going to get a handle on this pandemic, if we are going to beat this second wave and keep our schools open, we're going to need some immediate measures now. And that's why we've raised the alarm bells around contact tracing. Okay, and in order for contact tracing to be meaningful, as you said, it has to be rapid. And if you can't do it right away because you've got a backlog that's already slowing uh, the the uh, results of who's COVID positive, then you're really not going to get an the important uh, visual on where the outbreaks are happening. Correct? That's exactly right. Contact tracing which is the investigations that occur after cases are confirmed. It's a critical part of response to communicable disease prevention. But if you're not able to initiate contact tracing until five, six, eight days after a case is being confirmed positive, because there's a delay in getting tests and a delay in processing the results and then sharing the results, well, then it makes that work a little less meaningful. And so Toronto Public Health, listen, we're continuing to scale up. We have the largest contact tracing division in the entire country. We've increased from 50 to 700 full-time staff, and we're continuing to do more. In fact, the province is providing additional support today on that front. But it needs to be said very clearly that testing and contact tracing on their own are not going to spike this second wave. This is exactly why you heard our city and medical officer of health call for a 28-day pause for Toronto to do in Toronto what they've done effectively in other jurisdictions, whether in Australia or New York City, which is to put a pause on some of those environments where the virus is spreading the most so that we can not only save lives, but keep our schools open. Okay. And what are those environments, just to refresh our memory? So on Friday, our medical officer of health, Dr. Davila, formally called for a 28-day pause on dining in indoor bars and restaurants to, and this is really hard as well, to restrict uh, activities uh, in group settings in fitness and recreational programs. These are really hard decisions. These are decisions that if implemented, and we've requested provincial support to do so, these ones it feels like you're stepping backwards. 
but they are necessary to prevent harsher and more severe lockdowns in the future. If we act now, if we take swift and decisive action in a targeted fashion, we can spike the second wave before we have a repeat of last spring. All right. The Toronto Public Health, you mentioned that they have hired um, a whack of staff to deal with the, the COVID outbreak right now. Um, and you're adding more people to that. If they're not going to be uh, continuing to contact trace everyone uh, and their close contacts that come back with a positive COVID-19 result, can you tell us what they're going to be doing? So no work is being scaled back. Rather, it's being reprioritized. This is a temporary triaging, which is occurring. So full contact tracing, all of the investigations that take place is carrying on in all high-risk settings, in schools, in childcare, in long-term care, in shelters. Uh, each, as well, each and every person who tests positive, our, our team at Toronto Public Health is still contacting them directly to provide support and advice. But on an interim basis, that detailed investigations that occur to trace each and every potential contact, that is currently taking place in those highest risk settings in schools and childcare and long-term care. And in the general public, that work is currently uh, on pause as we continue to scale up the team, but also seek additional measures to spike this second wave. Joe, can you give us an idea uh, on how much time that the average person, you know, when you were to uh, do uh, contact tracing for the average uh, positive result, how much time that actually took up? Well, I can tell you that it's an incredibly, as you can imagine, um, labor-intensive activity. This is, you're conducting full investigations. So when you contact somebody who's tested positive, uh, you're seeking to ensure that you can identify each and every known person they've connected with over the previous 14 days. And the challenge in the world of a pandemic, because that's so labor-intensive, is that once you have a doubling case count and a rapid rise as we do now, no amount of contact tracers are going to be able to contain this pandemic. Rather, what's needed is to reduce the environments and the contacts where cases are taking place. And so when you have small case counts, effectively we can test and contact trace to isolate them. But once you have larger case counts like we do now, these more stronger measures like a pause on indoor dining for 28 days, become necessary if we're going to get the cases down. So, Joe, should we be operating under the assumption that all behavior is risky behavior and also download that COVID-19 alert app? Well, from an individual perspective, the advice today uh, is not dissimilar from advice in the past, but it cannot be stressed urgently enough. That being, reduce your interactions with people outside of your immediate household. If you, you know, when you're not at work and when you're at work, wear your mask and physically distance. And when you're not at school, and again, practice all of those protocols in place, uh, we have to stop socializing. We have to get back to our household and essential supports. Uh, We're not telling people to stay in their homes. We know getting outside is so important for health and mental health, but we need to limit our contacts with people right now. And as always, we need to wear a mask when we're outside of our household and bubble. Joe, it will be now up to the infected person to call their close, close contacts and let them know. How concerned is public health, Toronto Public Health, about the fact that people may not do this? I, they just, they may not be responsible enough to do this. 
Well, listen, I would tell you that we've reached overall a tipping point for the second wave right now. If we don't spike the number of cases immediately, if we don't do that, we are heading towards more severe lockdowns. And so the only way we're going to be able right now to spike this curve, to get back to where we want to be and not a return to last spring, is with some immediate actions. And, and it's not an, listen, I can't tell you how, what a hard decision it is to, to make to say that we need to close down indoor dining and bars and restaurants and we need to prohibit indoor group fitness activities and sport, indoor sports teams. That is brutal. Nobody wants to hear that. But if we don't do, take those actions now, there is a risk that we're going to see widespread lockdowns later. Joe, thank you very much for your time. You got it. Thanks, Kelly. That's Joe Cressy. He's the city councillor and chair of the Toronto Board of, of Health. Hopefully that answers some questions that might have been outstanding in your mind about contact tracing and what the city is going to. Sounds like we're really moving towards a bit of a a step, a couple of steps back when it comes to sports facilities, when it comes to going to the gym. And I wonder how open people would be to, uh, you know, actually following those rules. If people would be very upset if their gym gets taken away or if you realize that this is just... More of the same. We're just going to have to get used to this new reality for a while. That's it for the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Don't forget, we broadcast live Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till noon on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Have a great day.